Welcome, everybody, to Talk Gnosis After Dark. Um, I'm Bishop Lainey Peterson. My co-host, Bishop Ken Canterbury, can't be with us tonight, but we'll uh, see and hear from him again next week. And we are continuing our conversation with Bishop John Plummer about the independent sacramental movement. And during well, we, the vi- we may be continuing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Father. It may be the only conversation. <laughs> Father, please do explain. Well, we just finished recording the video show. Um, and there was uh, technology issues, and I don't know how much of it actually will be saved to YouTube because it kept telling me that we were losing the the, the video on the YouTube stream. So, um, if for your convenience, we're going to repeat some of the stuff we talked about <laughs> on that video show, just in case. Yes. Thank you, Father Tony. Father Tony, um, as always, our most excellent executive producer, is always on top of these things, so we don't have any major surprises. Um, as I was, we were talking, uh, Bishop Plummer, about the independent sacramental movement, and we kind of went over it in a nutshell. But in case we weren't able to salvage the video, um, can you just again, once again, briefly give it just a quick nutshell about what is the independent sacramental movement and what is the connection between uh, modern modern Gnostic churches and uh, the ISM? Sure. Um, the independent sacramental movement is, is one term, and there are other terms for it as well, for a large and sort of swirling, chaotic family of um, uh, um, churches, um, groupings, individuals who are undertaking a sacramental approach to Christian spirituality uh, usually with historical roots in some of the larger sacramentally oriented denominations like Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, but often with a fair bit of experimentation going on alongside the preservation of the sacramental tradition. And um, in terms of, of uh, Gnosticism in particular or esotericism more broadly, um, there are uh, crossovers between uh, those worlds and uh, independent churches running back um, I'd say at least into the into the 19th century, and perhaps most significantly, um, uh, the uh, uh, l'Eglise Gnostique in France and the Liberal Catholic Church in um, England, and then in Australia. And you had uh, pointed, I think, quite helpfully to uh, Siobhan Houston's fine book, um, which examines uh, those roots uh, in particular, so that people who are are um, perhaps uh, wandering in from some other Gnostic location going, how in the world did this happen and why? Um, uh, th- uh, that would be a good place to, to get your feet wet in, in, the, in the history, whether you think it's enlightening or horrifying. <laughs> Absolutely. And that, that book by Siobhan Houston, again, is Priests, Gnostics, and Magicians. And it is available on Amazon, both in paperback and in Kindle format. And it is also part of the Kindle Matchbook program. So if you buy the paperback, you can actually buy uh, the Kindle version at a very reduced rate. So it, it's kind of a great deal, and it's a great book and very useful. Oh, I didn't know they. I didn't know it was part of Kindle Match. That's great. Yeah, um, and for those of you who don't know what it is, when you like books, if you have bought a lot of books through Amazon over the years, you can go online to their Matchbook program and see if any of those books are now on Kindle and if they are available for free, uh, anywhere from ninety-nine cents, I think, maybe to a dollar ninety-nine or two ninety-nine. So you can actually really build up your Kindle library that way. Just letting folks know about that as a public service announcement. We're, we're wicked educational here on Talknosis. <laughs> we are, and, and and Bishop Laney does not like to see anybody. 
everybody spend more money than they have to. So there you go. Yeah, um, since we're such a wealthy group of people, right? We are, yes. And in fact, we talked about that early on, that the reason why, part of the reason there's so many schisms in the independent movement is that there's no money or property to fight over. Um, right. Because the, the groups are so small and so fluid that they don't, you know, nobody is giving us endowments or anything like that, which has its problems, but it's also a lot more positive than what we're seeing, say, among the United Methodists, who are beating each other to a bloody pulp every few years. So that, that's um, right. I mean, and I, th I think you're pointing to something valuable in that that um, in in our world, the um, there are a lot of things that are different from the mainstream, which often can be. Um, uh, taken by some people as sort of shaming, and yet they may be the very positive characteristics that define our unique vocation within sort of the larger Christian world, or even bigger than that. And um, is if you think about like um, um, a high percentage of people are ordained, we don't typically have um, um, uh, expensive buildings or big bank accounts. You know, these could be like oh, you people are not serious, or they could be like, wow, that is interesting, and I wonder what would happen. You know? Yeah, it, 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 it is interesting, uh, because a lot, of, a lot of people think that, a lot of people are familiar with churches that were, and local congregations that were endowed with a lot of money 50 to 100 years ago by some wealthy industrialist, and don't understand that these churches take a pile of money to run, and and they're based. You know, they're using an endowment plus current congregational contributions. Uh, they don't get that it's that 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 it's very difficult to start what we would consider to be a quote unquote real church with a mm -hmm. building and a Sunday school program and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Without, in many cases, as much as a million dollars backing it, plus um, ongoing support, plus backing from a denomination. So the fact that I think that many independent uh, sacramental churches actually do continue to operate, either uh, meeting in nursing homes or in, um, I've heard of some in funeral parlors. Um, I've been to one in a funeral parlor. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> but or meeting at coffee houses or whatnot. Uh, the fact that these groups can go on for many, many years and develop real community is in and of itself a pretty remarkable thing. It, it, it is. And, um, you know, like uh, we were speaking before of um, our uh, Tony and I have mutual friends in Black Mountain, North Carolina, who um, uh, run a lovely community there. And they, they rent, um, uh, they, they have worked in homes and one of the priests still has a home chapel, but um, they now have two um, communities that meet in spaces. And one is a, a space that the community rents um, all the time, 24-7, and uses for a variety of things that is in a little strip mall, and the other one meets in the back of an ice cream shop. And, you know, it works. It's all yeah. good. It, 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 it absolutely does. And it's, um, you know, as I said, it, it works for those groups. And the other thing is, is that um, we've talked about this in the past, is that so many times people think they need to over-organize their, their, their churches. We have to have a building. We have to have insurance. We have to have... Uh, a post office box. We have to have a. We have to be. We have to incorporate. We have to do all of oh, these things. No. And when there isn't anything to organize yet. Yeah. And yeah. Sometimes I mean, it's, yeah. These, these things are no. I mean, these things are tools. And and if you have something, if you have built up something to the point that you need these tools, well, then great. But you know, but thinking that you must have them in order to do this is just crazy. 
Yeah, I, and it, absolutely. Now, eventually, at some point, you may need so need it. I right. Mean, but right. You know, it, if you if you do have money that you have to manage on behalf of the community, well, then you might need a bank account, or you might have to incorporate for whatever reason. Um, but you know, most of us are not starting off in any sort of situation like that. And if you're me, you might even actively avoid it. But. Yes. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask about, we were talking during the video recording about how the independent sacramental movement is interesting in that there are uh, churches and groups and people within the movement that don't even recognize each other as legitimate. Oh, yeah. They're, oh, yeah. you know, we have the more Catholic than the Pope, <laughs> traditionalists going all the way to Christo-pagan groups. Right. Um, but... Uh, what do you think are some of and and we have of course the whole uh, the whole apostolic gnostic movement in there which yeah. is in its own little wing um what do you think are some of the challenges do you think that there's any universal challenges that affect both the orthodox smaller orthodox and mm -hmm. the more esoteric or liberal churches do you, th do you think that there's something that affects us all things that affect us all yeah, I do. Um, I, I think that it's it's really the, you might say almost the structural issues that affect us all. Um, uh, you know, theology and um, liturgical practice and things like that are, are, of course, essential and central and important and worth all the arguing about. But um, when you say what washes across us all as issues that we have to deal with, it is things like... Um, uh, how do you do liturgy in um, these alternate settings? How do you cultivate an authentic sacramental life um, in, um, in your living room or in the back of the ice cream shop? How do you understand yourself as a priest um, when you work all day in an office? And um, um, how does your priesthood run through your life? How, um, uh, how are people trained and prepared and um, uh, uh, initiated into um, uh, these things uh, in a way that's appropriate? Um, and, and that's not an attempt to mimic uh, a mainstream seminary process um, and yet uh, um, is, is authentic and gives them what they need. And, you know, we all, I think anybody operating outside the mainstream faces all of these type of challenges. And particularly with being a bivocational clergy person. Oh yeah, oh yeah, just incredibly fact, stressful. Oh yeah, and and you know, yet um, uh, one um, um, Australian bishop um, uh, used to say, "A uh, the challenge is you're a priest twenty four seven. You're a priest awake, asleep, on the bus. No matter what you're doing, that's who you are. And and you and that sort of the task of of being set into the world in this way." Is, is to figure out what, what does that mean and how does that work? And not in a form of clericalism of like, oh, I'm, you know, I can walk around in a funny outfit and I can make people call me this and that, because uh, that, that can become very silly very fast. But, um, but you know, I often think of things like, um, uh, you know, as we take part in the sacraments, um, um, we're training ourselves into certain modalities. Like, you know, the, the Eucharist is is um, self-giving in its very nature. Um, absolution is, the, uh, is this extension of forgiveness. Baptism is the beginning of a new life. Do those, do those um, sort of qualities begin to shape all of our life, even during the times in our, our life that aren't explicitly religious and when no one may know what we're up to? Um, uh, you, know, is, you know, are we kind of living a sacramental life 
in that the shape of those um, realities is now shaping us as we move in the world. You know, so it's things like that. Or, um, you know, I found a lot of usefulness um, in working with people who are, are interested in ordination in monastic spirituality um, because, um, you know, a lot of classical monastic vocation um, was built around ideas of, you know, interceding for the world and, and um, a kind of a hidden spirituality. And uh, while a lot of parts of it like uh, celibacy or obedience or whatever may not be relevant to um, somebody living in, um, a, you know, a suburb in Nashville, Tennessee, and working at a university, not me, uh, but, uh, but, you know, the, the idea of, of uh, you know, I get up every morning at four o'clock in the morning and say mass, like nobody's there but me and the dog, uh, you know, and so wh what does that mean? What, what do I think I'm doing? And looking at the reflections of people like um, Carthusian monastic priests from the 12th century is actually much more relevant been a lot of material that may be, you know, put out by contemporary churches. So. You know, I, I, our mutual friend, uh, John Michael Greer, uh, is yes. also a Gnostic bishop, and yes. um, he's got the Celtic Gnostic Church, which is associated with his Druid order. And yes. it's interesting, he says much the same thing, that a lot of times the, the modern-day Gnostic priesthood is more modeled on a secular Catholic or traditional Protestant ministry, which he feels is a shame, because he prefers to form people as priests more in the monastic tradition. Yes. Um, and for him, this is proving to be an incredibly effective uh, way of forming people for the ministry. And I think it has its, I think it has its advantages. The only issue is, is what happens if that's not your calling. If your calling is to a more public ministry, then you've got a whole other set of issues. That's right. That That's right. And I, I think what one of the values and the challenges of such a varied movement is that, that nothing that we say is going to capture, um, you know, everyone across the board. And, and I think all of us have to step back into our own spaces and say, I, you know, I'm speaking from within my own little vocational bubble. And, um, uh, and that, you know, the independent movement, if it displays anything, displays that there are a zillion different ways of doing this. And um, uh, one has to trust that that variety is at least partially of the spirit we hope and <laughs> you know it's i think about my own vocation i mean i, I was ordained back in in 1998 and it's really varied at various mm -hmm. times i mean i've kind of had a had a have prayer brook will travel ministry where i will mm -hmm. do uh, funerals and weddings when when necessary but right. a lot of it's been very informal counseling although i have been part of of little parishes at times and I'll tell you this, I never thought I'd be doing podcast and video, uh, but you know, I did, we didn't even think about that. We had the internet back then, but it was nothing like what we're seeing now. That's right. I My think ministry, I met you on the internet. We did. <laughs> it, was, we, it was like did. very rudimentary internet. <laughs> we, had a, we, we had a list serve. Remember yeah. list, list serves? Oh, that's and, right. Silver yeah. Chalice, right? It, it was Fiat Lux, and then oh, it became Fiat Silver Chalice. Okay. There was a okay. schism, and we, had, and we moved over to Silver Chalice. Of course. Um, but, yeah, for, for esoteric Christians, and uh, that's how we met, and that's how I think I, I found the Friends Catholic Communion, and that that all happened, got ordained a couple of years later. Um, that's right. But That's right. I never thought that my ministry would take this particular no. path at no. all. And no. this but this is what happened. 
It is. And, and I think it, it is a lesson, you know, as, as we all look back, um, those of us who've been ordained for a while, it's kind of frightening how long it is now. Um, I, I think I think you, you, you just come to a point of saying, like, I'm not in control of this. And and I really don't know um, where it's going, because I certainly couldn't have predicted all the things that have happened and where it's it's gone. And I, I think back to I don't remember if it was my ordination or my consecration, but but Catherine Adams um, said to me, She's like, this is like being tossed out on a rough sea and you have two choices. You can just go with it and see where it takes you or you can fight it and drown. You choose. And um, Well, that was Catherine. <laughs> that was her approach, yeah. Yeah, and that was her approach. But, you know, like a bit of a rough text in at times, right? But but I think there's a lot of truth in that. It's like you, you do sort of give up to um, a larger movement. And, and even though you participate in it, and it's not like it's just... But, um, uh, or uh, Mario Schoenmaker in Australia used to say, ordination's almost like, like the installation of a second self, um, and and uh, that gradually begins to um, uh, sort of take over your life. And I mean that that image only works so far, but there but there is there is a truth in that. Like you look back and you're like, what happened? How did this happen to me? And, um, you know, and how did I wind up doing this? And like you say, you know, my own, my own path through it is, uh, has been quite different from what I ever would have envisioned when I was ordained a priest in whatever it was, 95 or 96. And, um, the, um, it's just, it, taken me to different parts of the world and I've done different things and I, I never meant to write things that other people would read. Uh, the the mini pass got published almost accidentally and um, the um, you know things just transpire but um, uh, but it I think it also leads to a trust and that there is this um, uh, if we truly are trying to um, hand ourselves over to be of use yeah. Um, uh, then, um, uh, you know, the, the spirit may look and go, oh, God, these are the only people that volunteered. But at the same time, you know, we will be put to, to use. And, um, and while the independent movement's history is full of, of characters and, and uh, um, uh, or as John Michael Greer likes to say, um, uh, the, 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 the sort of folks who are, are kind of half initiate, half charlatan, um, yeah. uh, the, you know, it, I think it also gives us us great hope that that some of the real good that we have now um, came out of people who were broken and um, uh, not unlike you know contemporary people in the movement. We don't have to have some sort of of um, perfect shiny um, um, world that uh, we can actually uh, just you know pick ourselves up and see where it goes. I remember my own ordination. I remember there were a bunch of people in town, including some visiting clergy and that sort of thing. And everybody had on different kinds of vestments. There was real no no real uniformity. And, no. And we, we were in that we were in that little tiny chapel at that beautiful yes. little retreat center. The oratory and, of the little yeah, way. Yeah, yep. and we were there. And I remember, you know, being on the floor and 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 you know, I was first made a deacon, and then they immediate. I was immediately after that ordained a priest. Um, I remember being on the floor in the, in the cross shape, and um, what I remember most, though, was uh, Bishop Catherine anointing my hands with oil, mm -hmm. and you know, and and then tying them up with a piece of cloth. Right. And I, it was a very moving ceremony, and it was it was just so real. And I but I remember we then went into breakfast, and I picked up a bagel, and I said, 
in my hands I have the power to do something with this bagel that I didn't have before. Yeah. And it was it was one of those I mean, I've I've spoken to some people who feel like there was no ontological change after ordination. I understand that, but that was not my experience. It's not it, my experience at all. I mean, I, 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 you know, everybody can only say what their own experience is, but it, it's it's absolutely my my experience that there is something something real and and um, if you say, well, why should you know, with all the problems that that um, priestly hierarchies have caused in in Christianity mm -hmm. and with all of the um, the damage that they've done and the bad patterns that have been perpetuated, you know, why, why would you continue to ordain people? It, it, there is something to it and it cannot, it, it cannot happen some other way. Like there is just something to this. And I don't know what to say other than that that is my, my absolutely rock bottom experience. And if it's not somebody else's, you know, what can yeah. I do? But, but it, it is. And, and I think it is something that is very difficult to understand until you're on the other side of it. Yeah, I think it is. Although the interesting thing for me also is we, we've talked a lot about formation and, and you and I were talking about that we had relatively traditional formations in many ways prior to ordination. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, you know, I've spent now uh, the last, oh gosh, what, it, you know, what, what is it at this point, uh, 16 years? Yeah. Um, with a whole other period of formation. The whole last 16 years have been a formation. I don't think the formation ever ends. No, no, it doesn't because it, it continues to move. And um, um, like I, I've often, uh, I have a friend who's a mainstream Coptic Orthodox priest and um, he has told me about their ordination practices. And I've, I've often thought that this was quite good that when, when a Coptic, I think it's breaking down in the modern era, but when a, traditionally a Coptic Orthodox priest is ordained, um, the ordination happens, and then they ship him off, of course, always him, to uh, a monastery, and he spends 40 days in a monastery with a senior monastic priest sort of learning about things and how to do things and what it is to be a priest and blah, blah, blah. And then after 40 days, like Jesus, 40 days in the desert and whatever, he's brought back and then given... Um, bread and wine, and told, "Okay, now, now you can, now you can begin," and um, uh, and I think we do that over and over and over again. Um, uh, you know, we we just deepen in learning what it is that we're doing, and um, and and it's. I mean, it sounds very traditionally religious to say this, but I, I think it's just uh, piece by piece, bit by bit, we gradually, gradually um, hand ourselves over a little bit more to Christ. And, um, and as that happens, um, uh, you know, we get led in different directions and we become hopefully maybe a little bit more useful. I've often found it's. They say if you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans. But it's almost. It's almost also. We have this image of who we think we are, mm -hmm. and uh, over time, if we're willing to take, if we're willing to to be honest, we see mm -hmm. that, that that image is going to change drastically. That, and, that's right, yeah. and it gets broken. It gets broken. I mean, it, 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 somebody takes a hammer to it. It's like, sorry, that's not working so well. <laughs> yeah, and in, in the Gospel of Philip, there's a passage about baptism, and and that for 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 that community, the baptism was two parts. There was uh, you were united with chrism, and then there was the water, and it said that that the the chrism was the light, and the water was the mirror. And you mm -hmm. can't see yourself in the mirror without the light. 
and um, you know, and and it was it was kind of an interesting bounce. But there was this notion of you see, seeing your image, and and but without having the light, you you can't do that. And it's the more light that I've encountered, the more good light that I've encountered. Right. Um, it's it's very it's a very humbling process. It, it is. It is. I mean, it, uh, we seem to be saying the same things over and over again, but it's learning that it's not about you yeah. and, and that, that um, there is some, this larger reality and that you often don't know and for, I think, good reasons are not always allowed to know what you're really doing or what the effects are until maybe you look back on it and then you see, like, oh, something was at work here. And um, uh, it, it's... Um, um, you know, but you become, I think we become more and more um, skillful priests. And, you know, I think in the, um, I really, while I don't personally usually use the, the G word of Gnosticism to describe anything about myself, there's a lot about that end of the movement that I appreciate. And and one thing that I would say is that I, I, I feel like a lot of people who come to um, the Gnostic identified end of the movement are looking for... Um, uh, spiritual experience and um, uh, that they don't want to just show up at church and you know go kind of um, have this nice social experience and these little you know uh, the, the usual thing and I'm not saying that there isn't depth that's available in those communities at all because obviously there is but but I think people are looking for um, often a more intensive um, approach um, and um, and are looking for how do these rituals um, actually communicate to me the reality that they claim to convey? And, um, uh, you know, how does spiritual experience and sacramental life um, uh, come together? And that's a, a, that's a very hard thing to get um, one's arms around in, in a good way. And yet, uh, you know, because we, we can't, we're not forcing the Holy Spirit. We, we cannot command Christ to do something. And yet, you know, there is this coming together where we're together with Christ. This The communion happens and something that's intensely real um, is conveyed um, to the recipient. And, um, and in a, uh, uh, you know, and so I think that Part of the gift of the um, sort of the Gnostic end of the movement is to wrestle a bit with like, how how does all of this, how does this deepening of, of inner practice, how does this attempt to journey into more conscious experience of certain realities and the sacramental life all come together? I don't know. Am I making any sense at all? No, I, I, I think it does. And I, I think you're right. I, I... I, the only I think is I think that some people may be attracted to the G end or the esoteric end or whatnot in hopes of an experience. Um, I would also say that my, my spirituality has not been a series of experiences. Mm -hmm. There have been experiences, mm -hmm. but um, I think that there's always I always do have the concern with people expecting um, a group or a church to have the magic touch to make something happen in you. That's uh, right. Yeah, which is and that's you know, the danger. Yeah. That's obviously yeah. that's obviously the danger, or or the other um, danger is to um, think that um, because I've had this experience, this momentary experience in whatever setting, that therefore um, that means I my personality have attained something, right? As opposed to 
a window has been opened to me so that I now know in, in my gut that, that, that this is real and that therefore it's a little easier for me to kind of, of open that window a little more and kind of grow into that a bit. But, but it doesn't mean that I am somehow, uh, you know, a, a spiritually special. special person. Yeah. And, and that is a danger that I think we've all seen repeated um, a number of times in, in esoteric groups. It's such a common um, thing. I think you make a good point when you talk about growing into that. I mean, it sounds like you may have an experience, you mm -hmm. may have a window or something, you may even be given a tool, mm -hmm. but we all know that even if, 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 if a gift like that happens, it doesn't mean that you know how to use it. And That's right. there is that whole growing in wisdom after that, and there are things that happened to me 20 years ago that I can look back now and say, you know, now I know how to use that. That's that's right. But I that's didn't, right. and I was, if anything, bashing myself over the head or other people over the head. But it, you know, it, it was not necessarily something that improved my life or my spirituality at that point. And it took me years, and I'm still learning how to make use of that. That's right. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a. Uh, but that's why people come together um, in these in these ways, and why we're not all just isolated units because um, it is it is difficult, and and it's worth you know, as we talk to one another and as we share practice uh, with people who've gone down similar paths, they can go, oh, watch it, watch out, you know, yep. no, known pitfall, uh, yeah. or, or uh, here comes something, and um, it can be um, um, helpful in, in that regard and can point out even things as simple as like, you know, there's Easter, but there's also Holy Saturday. Both of these are yeah. you know, experiences. <laughs> Absolutely. Father Tony, I think you may have had some questions. I did, yeah. I've been uh, I've been just listening intently. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to leave you out. It's just, yeah, no, no, that's I'm, great. Friends here, old friends. <laughs> if you wind me up, I might just talk, you know. <laughs> well, so will I, so it's, it's, it's a podcast. It helps when you talk. <laughs> yes. No, I, one one thing I was curious about, kind of uh, tangentially to what you were just talking about, is um, that most independent sacramental churches that I've attended, and I've I've gone to a few, um, is uh, you know there's two bishops celebrating, uh, three priests con celebrating, four or right. five priests in the in, in the pews, and maybe one lay person. Right. But, yep. Why do you think that is? <laughs> well, I don't. I, I, La Lady probably remembers that when we were both in Friends Catholic, that Catherine used to threaten to make Sonia Beckett the official layperson and come up with a right to consecrate her yes. to that office. God <laughs> but but uh, yes, um, it. I, I I don't know. I mean, I think um, on the the. It's probably a, a number of different factors. Um, on the healthy side of things, I think the independent movement draws a lot of people that have um, genuine vocations to some form of um, priesthood that don't fit within mainstream patterns. And whether that's because they're a person like, um, you know, a female Roman Catholic or a gay person in a, a church that isn't accepting or, um, or whether it's just that the very... Um, structure of their of the ministry they're called to or you know for whatever reason their priesthood isn't going to fit in the in the usual box and and um and so a lot of people arrive with 
kind of a priesthood vocation in their bag already. And, and then, you know, there may be other people who, um, um, you know, have uh, um, unbalanced issues around that, which we've all also, I'm sure, repeatedly yeah. seen. Um, but I, I think there are interesting experiments going on with different ways. And um, I, I think of some of the better communities that I know and um, these are communities run by volunteers, yep. and uh, as they grow and as their needs grow, um, uh, you know, there is no paid person who can always be available to do this or that. And um, having a number of people who have um, a high degree of ownership over um, the community's mission, whatever that mission might be, however hidden or public it is, um, and therefore are willing to do the things that need to be done can enable um, a, a lot to happen, you know, because somebody needs to go visit so-and-so in the hospital. Well, a person A is at work. Person B has got their kid at the soccer game. But person C is free, and they can do it. Yeah. And um, so it leads to a more collaborative um, practice. And, and there are experimental um, models being tried out by different people. And, you know, I think it's far too early to know what's going to work and, and what will go into the dustbin over time. But um, I think of someone like um, um, Marcus Van Alphen and the Young Right, um, uh, which I have, you know, gotten to spend a little time with in person. And, and I think overall is, is quite an interesting thing. Um, I don't know if you know what they do. Um, they will... Um, uh, they will pretty much put anyone who comes forward and is willing to sort of engage in the process through um, ordinations, for, through minor orders, through deacon, and even through priest. And um, uh, somebody from the Young Right can listen to the podcast and correct me if I get this wrong, but I believe the way it works is that when, when someone comes up through this and they reach priesthood, they, they make a promise that... Um, that they understand that their ordination and their ability to um, offer the sacraments is for themselves and their, you know, immediate family, and that only um, people that have undertaken more extensive training um, and um, uh, uh, different types of formation are then authorized by the young right to do public ministry. So that they're not okay. authorizing, an, you know, someone who isn't appropriately trained to preach or to teach or to counsel or whatever to do those things. Because, you know, obviously that's that would be bad. Um, yeah. but, they, but they are saying, you know, simply the administration of the sacraments is something that can be much more broadly shared. And they seem to have enabled like a quite startling number of people um, to sort of conduct their own little domestic sacramental lives. And, I, you know, I don't know. It's, I'm just watching from the sideline going, this is very interesting. Um, yeah, my first experience in, in the Gnostic world was through the, uh, the Apostolic Gnostic Church in America, mm -hmm. which, was, uh, which had the doctrine uh, they called the radical priesthood of all believers, mm -hmm. and that everybody who was involved with the, uh, the AGCA had the ability to act as a priest in the AGCA. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was an interesting model, and, and the the AGCA was doomed for other reasons. But yeah. uh, but uh, you know, and, and and my patriarch is is fond of saying, if anybody can speak for your organization, then anybody will. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, and it's it's very difficult. Like Lainey and I both spent time in the now defunct um, Friends Catholic um, uh, Community Church, and it had a couple different names at different times. But it was an communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was an attempt essentially to um, 
combine uh, kind of a Catholic sacramental structure with a Quaker decision-making model. And uh, a worthy experiment that, that went through a number of collisions around um, yeah. um, how to handle authority, how to handle decision-making, how to handle um, significant dissent over things. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think they were asking all the right questions, and they, but, you know, answers weren't always apparent. And, um, uh, and I would say the same about a lot of these, uh, these attempts to, to experiment. I mean, I, I think the, um, um, you know, like what the, the way that the LCC has handled theology has been very interesting and in that everything, even the Nicene Creed is right there in the book, but you can interpret it any way that you want. Does that work? Does it not work? You know, what do you do? Um, uh, the Steiner, Kristen Gemeinschaft has made some interesting, you know, experiments as well with, um, uh, so, People are trying things. You know, I think, I, um, in just in response, Father Tony, I think we talked a while back with Bishop Canterbury, and he said, you know, he joined an esoteric order where if you joined this order, there was an associated Gnostic church with it, and you were pretty much expected to take at least minor orders and, and become a priest. But the idea that I got from him, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that it was never really intended to be a public ministry where you would be having public services for people outside of your, your, your group. Mm. Um, so I think that in some cases with Gnostic churches um, and a lot of ISM churches, if they're associated with an esoteric order, that's just a product of the of the association there. Um, on one hand, on, on the more negative side of things, I think sometimes you have people who are perhaps unbalanced, who mm -hmm. cannot make it through a standard seminary program or a denominational formation program, who find the ISM, find a naive bishop, or the, the bishop themselves is a little unbalanced, and um, the bishop wants people. And there can be kind of a, 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 a people are attracting people who want power are attracting people who also want recognition, and it can get kind of unhealthy. But on the positive side, as, as, as John said, there are also some people doing some great ministry that they could not do within a lot of institutional churches, coming yeah. up with new ways of doing things, having uh, who, are, who are acting as chaplains or as counselors, and um, who are able to to meet needs in ways that are, aren't always a part of a larger group's structure or model. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the crazy comes to the surface pretty fast because honestly, there's so little real power to be had. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and some of the craziest, craziest, most manipulative, destructive people I've ever known I met in mainstream seminary. So, and there's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some of them are really good at concealing it. I mean, the, the, yes, the, 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 the and truly good sociopath. And, yeah. you know, and some people I know, uh, some of those people are ordained in mainstream denominations. So I, I actually would contend that we don't have a higher percentage of crazy than the mainstream. It, or the, people, the, the crazy is a little bit more obvious. People are a little bit more honest about it as opposed to those who are pretty slick. Yes. I mean, uh, or even if they're not, it's a lot harder to hide. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because the truly slick and the truly capable are going to go for um, a field where there is more to be gained. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think we also see um, um, it's not uncommon for people to come into the movement and go back out again relatively quickly. Um, and uh, I think 
that happens for many reasons, but uh, it often revolves around um, uh, wanting a certain amount of validation or recognition or people to think that this is great and to treat you in a certain way. And when everybody's like, no, you're a member of that really weird group, um, then uh, they hightail it for other quarters or just get bored and go do something else. If anything, I think being a bivocational priest is, is even more difficult because, for one thing, you have to go out and find a job with an MDiv, in my case, and with an MDiv on my resume. And I'm a female, so I don't have quite the same problem, but I know that male, men who have seminary degrees in particular, if you're looking for secular employment and you've got a seminary degree, they want to know why you're not in a church. And they might assume that there's been some kind of scandal or problem. Um, the other thing I've run into that, and the other mm -hmm. the other issue is that you say, oh, actually, I'm bivocational. I have this church um, that I serve, but it's it's you know uh, it's volunteer. Well, then they worry how dedicated you are going to be to your job. And people sometimes get a little weird about bivocational clergy because they don't they can't wrap their mind around that model. Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, I mean, people. Um, that I work with uh, usually figure out that I do something eventually. I don't typically say too much at work. I mean, they're probably going to be listening to this podcast, all, all of you little office people. Hello. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but um, you know, and I, I, I think I outed myself a, a tiny bit more when I, I did a wedding for a former um, coworker at her insistence, which is uh, she has a, a, a rare place because I, I do very, 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 very few um, uh, weddings. But um, the um, uh, but yeah, it's it, it, it's just a different it, it's it's just like when people encounter us to begin with, they, they don't often have a way of processing like, how is this church work? What is this community like? In what sense are you a priest? What do you do? Um, because it's just so different from, um, from the mainstream. And uh, my current sort of engagement um, uh, in the, the talks I'm doing in Black Mountain, and which will hopefully become another book, I, I'm trying to look at um, uh, you know, what is an, what is a functional ecclesiology for communities like ours? Yeah. And, um, cause I, I think we need to find a way to be able to talk about ourselves as, as church, as people taking part in a ministry, as a priesthood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that arises out of our own experience and our own unique vocations and isn't, um, isn't sort of a replicating um, uh, the mainstream. I mean, the mainstream is fine. There, no, no, you know, well, I have my arguments with it, but you know, that there are many fine people there. They're doing fine things. We don't have to do what they're doing. And, and we don't need to necessarily mirror um, uh, in a kind of, or, or react against their models. You know, if, if we just replicate um, the Roman Catholic Church on a, on a microscopic basis, or we go into wild reaction against it, neither of those are helpful. It's like, no, let's look at our own experience and where we're really going and, um, and find a way to talk about this that actually speaks to who we are and, um, and that maybe would help um, people that come around curiously understand um, the, kind of, uh, the, the kind of family that we are. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, something that you brought up earlier, um, I remember uh, Bishop Tanya's uh, 
sister and and, and Bishop Catherine was talking about making her the the office of the official layperson. <laughs> but I, I sometimes do wonder, you know, how how do lay people feel when they're completely surrounded by clergy and. Uh, you know, what can our little communities do to make sure that people who don't have a vocation uh, mm -hmm. to ministry don't feel pressured, don't feel insignificant, number one, and don't mm -hmm. feel in any way pressured to seek an ordination that they don't feel a vocation for? And I think that's a, I, that's a concern that I have. It, it, it is. And um, I think that there are, you know, well, like I think about the community that I worship with here in Nashville, and um, um, there is um, my friend who is the pastor. There is um, me, and I'm often just helping in the background or sitting in the pew. And there is a subdeacon, um, and that's it. And then the um, there on a, an average Sunday, there's probably ten to fifteen people. Uh, now, but most of those people have very active roles in different ways. Like um, the one person always um, lights all the candles and sees that everything is set up. The one person plays the organ. The one person um, takes up the collection every Sunday um, and handles the the, um, uh, the minimal books, such as they may be. Um, you know, uh, there. It's like each one of these people has found their own. It's a community that's been around since the 1970s, so it's had a fair bit of time to work through this. But they've all found, you know, a service that they can perform. It's just that um, it may not be um, an ordained um, um, uh, service, and and that seems to function really well. And um, uh, not to, you know, people. Everybody, it, like in all small communities, everybody's effort is 100% needed. And I think everyone realizes that. And it's like, yes, you know, Nicholas may be up front in a, investments um, celebrating the liturgy, but the effort of every one of these other people is just as necessary to make sure that this happens every week. Um, uh, another model would be um, what the LCC has often done, and the Young Right has mirrored this a little bit, and that the LCC often said that um, uh, the minor orders didn't need to be conceived as um, a path to um, deacon or priest, that the minor orders were entirely um, uh, appropriate uh, for people whose function in the community was largely um, or, or completely lay and um, could be a way of sort of, um, you might say, blessing or empowering um, certain functions um, like reading in church or um, taking care of the building um, or looking after um, people in some sort of way uh, that, you know, that you're not going to be dressed up in vestments, but we can, we can um, you know, bless you to that office within the community. I've often thought about that. I've often felt that the minor orders are really ignored Mm -hmm. In many cases, you know, you either get them all at once or, and I always thought that that would be a really uh, good apprenticeship uh, mm -hmm. for, for, for people who are called to, mm -hmm. um, to the diaconate or the priesthood. Um, and particularly if they can't go to a standard seminary, that would be an excellent model for that. But also to recognize individuals in the congregation who do have a ministry uh, but aren't called to the diaconate of the priesthood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think I think so. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who I won't name because he's kind of, he's a little bit known. He, I don't know if he would want to be named in this context, but okay. he, he went he went to um, 
he went through to not with me, but with someone else. He went through to Exorcist, and then he felt that that um, that in a in a kind of symbolic way with the work that he does in the world, that exorcism was actually sort of what his work is, and yeah. um, and and that's as far he's never wanted to go any further. That was it. Yeah. And and yet that means an incredible lot to him, even though it's not something that he publicly talks about. And um, um, but yes, I, I I actually did go through the minor orders one by one because Tony Hash was living in um, Benton, Virginia, and I okay. was living in Tennessee, so I could drive back and forth to these little gatherings. And you know, it might be like two over the course of a weekend or whatever. But I it absolutely was um, a, a really good way of. Um, uh, you know, kind of getting your feet wet and exploring um, sort of different aspects of what this is, because each of the minor orders kind of begins to pick up pieces of the puzzle and carries you a little bit further. And uh, it's, it's um, um, you know, I, I think it all depends on the person, because there are a lot of people where um, uh a step, and I was definitely one of them, where a step-by-step -step gradual approach was by far the best way and what was needed. And for other people, because of life circumstances or just their nature, off the deep end with them, and, and it yeah. somehow works. You know, I think in, in my case, I mean, again, you know, that I was made deacon and priest right. at, at the same time, and that was right. strictly because of a distance issue. Mm -hmm. I was not living near uh, any of the bishops, mm -hmm. and I had been through seminary, been through several internships, mm -hmm. so Catherine felt I'd been doing deacon's work for two years, might as well make me a priest. But one mm -hmm. of, the, one of the, the difficulties is that I was prepared not for independent sacramental ministry. Right. I was prepared for standard mainstream Protestant ministry. Right. And, uh, you know, so it, it took a while for me to, I guess, reform myself. Translate this. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I had the same chore. Yeah. And, 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 and I think in my, you know, I was very lucky to have the, the geographic proximity where I could um, get, you know, kind of a more gradual, um, um, and and I uh, when you know and I had also when I lived in New York I had encountered things like the LCC and the Christian Gemeinschaft so I had had some more in person experience of these communities before this as well um, but you know like um, uh, one ordination I did of this of a woman uh, that I got a lot of criticism for sort of um, you know kind of the off the deep end approach but. Uh, I felt quite sure that for a variety of factors, geographic and, and health-wise, that um, I might not ever be in the same place with her again and that I needed to discharge this responsibility. And that has indeed turned out to be true. So, you know, one, that I there would not have been another opportunity. So, um, you know, you one just has to do according to one's best discernment in, in the moment. Absolutely. And um, it's except with grace, the fact that you also might make mistakes and, and yeah, and that hopefully God can write straight with your crooked lines, maybe. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, I, I've 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 got a whole bucket full of stories um, of people who were um, ordained under some of the most um, uh, screwball circumstances that you could possibly imagine. Um, uh, kind of the worst case scenarios, and then five years later, ten years later, um, life took a turn, and suddenly that came alive in them. And um, 
you know, so it's, I, I don't know that we always know, um, um, what's going to happen with people. Yeah. Um, I know somebody who's a martial artist and he told me once that he knew a sensei who would basically give out black belts like candy mm-hmm. on the grounds that he expected people to grow into them. And, uh, well, it's not, what would not be my approach to things, but you no. know, what's, that's what happens. Sometimes you're in a certain situation, you, 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 something is laid on you, but then you have to grow into it. Yes. And how and, to do or, that is not always easy. Or, out how you to know, the, the, the British, um, esotericist and, um, Church of England priest, um, Tony Duncan, um, one time remarked about about such a person he's like well maybe that ordination is for their next lifetime <laughs> it well. doesn't seem to be for this one <laughs> i remember his books and they, they, there was some marvelous stuff there so oh, oh yes i mean i i i have i have forced many people to read the priesthood of man which i i think is is an utterly fantastic although um uh, you know obviously the title relates to a prior time in the English language, but, um, the, um, uh, it's, um, it's a really, really interesting examination of, of, um, of, um, priesthood of, um, sort of what is human being of, um, how do sacraments work across time? And uh, very interesting man. I have to get that one. I, I, I forget the one that I read, but the Lord of the dance probably when he, yeah, when he met Pan and, and, and that was all, yes, that's, that's the Lord of the dance. And that was quite remarkable. So. Well, let's uh, let's start wrapping it up because we're yep. about at our hour. Okay. Yep. That was a great conversation. I just have one final question, <clears throat> not to put you on the spot, Bishop Plummer, but um, if you had one piece of advice that you would give to the independent sacramental movement as a whole, what would it be? What, what do you think the independent sacramental movement needs to do next? <laughs> I, well, I, I, would, I would say... I, one one piece of advice in a large sweeping way, and one piece of advice to individuals within it. My, my my advice to the movement as a whole would be to truly own what it is, to not try to be something other than it is, to not try to replicate the mainstream, to really own what it is, and to start from the assumption that if we are indeed somehow part of the church, that the Holy Spirit is active in us, that we can look at with with just unshielded eyes, that we can look at the nature of our communities and the nature of our ministries and how things are actually happening, not how we think they should be happening, and try to discover within that what we're being called to. And um, and the my advice to individuals within it would be um, to not ever allow strange circumstances or isolation to take them off of, um, uh, you know, their, their regular participation in... Um, uh, spiritual practice and especially sacramental practice, because I mean, it, you know, sticking to that through thick and thin is is what I think makes all the difference. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I hope it was interesting. I had a great time talking to you guys. <laughs> we should Skype just for fun sometimes, even we without should. listening. And Anytime. not record it? What, is, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh. I don't know what that you means. Can, you can record all the scandalous stuff without me knowing you're recording it. Then you can post it somewhere. Then everybody will hate all of us, but yeah. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, it was a great conversation. I I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, for everybody out there in podcast land, we'll see you next week. All right. right, Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.
This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information on this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Thank you.